Jeremiah chapter 16. Last week we looked at the first 13 verses. And uh, all of those verses were quite heavy when it came to the condemnation that was being placed upon Judah by the Lord for their disobedience, for their idol worship, for their rebelliousness. Ten years out from the coming of the Babylonians, God through his prophets in particular, through Jeremiah, has been warning them to get their hearts right before the Lord. But they would not. As much as the prophet loved his people, God said, it doesn't matter how much you pray. He says, save your breath. Don't pray. Because they're going to be judged. And so, last week, because of the heaviness of that message, I read to you verses 14 and 15, what we're going to read tonight. And told you that this was the good news. So let's look at verses 14 and 15 and then we'll pray and then we'll get into our study. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said. The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land, which I gave to their fathers. Shall we pray? Lord, I thank you and I bless you that you are our God and our Father. And that you are mighty and holy and wondrous in all of your ways. And, and because of that, Lord, we can tonight just pour out our praise and thanksgiving to you as we've done and I hope will continue to do not only tonight but in the days to come and we look to you this evening Father for your word to speak to our hearts we anticipate Lord the anointing and the blessing of your Holy Spirit to be upon us especially each and every one that desires to know you more. And desires to grow in your grace and knowledge. And desires to let you live your life through us. And who desires to let you do whatever is necessary in our lives. to change us, to melt us, to mold us, and to shape us more and more each day into the image of Jesus Christ. And so I ask for that blessing of your Spirit for each and every one, Lord, that is here to seriously listen to your Word. 
to receive it and to do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There's an old saying that is even considered to be a proverb of sorts that says, it is always darkest before the dawn. Now, I try to do my best to look up phrases that I may not be acquainted with the author or what the source may be. And I can tell you that's one source that you can't find. (laughs) I'm sure a lot of people have used it. It comes from somewhere. But it says it is always darkest before the dawn. Now, astronomically, that really isn't true. The darkest part of the night, most scientists say, is about halfway through the night when the sun is directly on the opposite side of the planet. But as all sayings go, there seems to be a reason for the hope that this saying imparts. It's always darkest before the sun arises. The important thing is the sun's going to arise. And maybe to get a better understanding of that thought, you can't get any lower than rock bottom before things start looking up. In other words, there's only one way to go after you've gone as low as you can go, and that's up. When you've hit rock bottom, the only place you can go is up. How long was Judah going to get? Or how low was Judah going to get? Because they were getting lower and lower as we turn the pages of the book of Jeremiah. But how low had they already gotten so as to be told by the prophet Jeremiah that they would be facing sure and horrible deaths as well as captivity in an unknown land for their sins of idolatry and rebellion and presumption against the God of their fathers? How much lower? They only had ten more years to go. How much lower could they get? I mean, to have no one praying for them at the Lord's command. To have Jeremiah's life be an object lesson for the children of Judah to show them that life as they knew it would be disrupted and leading to catastrophe as we saw last week in the first 13 verses. To maintain their ungodly yet yet their comfortable lifestyle because false prophets had led them astray and their consciences in effect had died. Their consciences toward the things of God had died. All of this is to find Judah at its very lowest right before all the destruction breaks loose upon them. And yet in this last half of this chapter, Jeremiah gives the people a message of hope. One day, he says, the exiles will return to their land and it will be such a great deliverance that it will be looked upon as a second exodus and one that would surpass Israel's glorious exit from Egypt. Notice what verse, one, uh, verse 14 says, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said. They will not be, they will not be saying, The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. What they'll be saying is what it says in verse 15, But the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land which I gave to their fathers. Now consider the differences here. Israel for 
whatever reasons, have been taken into captivity in Egypt. They were in the land fine when, when Joseph was there. But after Joseph died and the new Pharaoh that came in put all of Israel under extreme bondage, extreme captivity, extreme slavery for 400, over 400 years. They lived in this condition until Moses came. Well, actually Moses arose in Egypt, got out of Egypt, went out, met the Lord, came back with a directive to bring his people out of Egypt. And so that happened. But now they're not going to look back so far. A greater deliverance is going to come. They're going to look back on their second exodus, an exodus from Babylon and all the other nations to which God had deported them. This is, in, in, a, in a greater sense, a greater deliverance because they put themselves in that bondage. They put themselves in that captivity. They put themselves in that burden of punishment because they refused to be obedient to God. They refused to listen to what God's Word had to say. So a greater exodus, a greater deliverance, a greater exit takes place. The Lord promised to bring His people back into the promised land anyway. How many times did the Lord promise? Well, these are just a couple of examples, but listen to the prophet Isaiah. You go back to the book of Genesis, and, and the Lord, even in Genesis 12, talks about bringing them back into the land. You, you know, that's where He establishes the fact that they're going to be in the land in the first place. But now in Isaiah 43, verse 14 and following, it says, Thus saith the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send you to Babylon. You know, they were the sinners, but for their sake, so that God can deliver them and rescue them and, and, and change them, He has to send them into captivity. For your sake, I will send you to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives. After the time served, who's the, who are the real fugitives? The Chaldeans, who rejoice in their ships. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus saith the Lord, who makes a way in the sea and a path through the mighty waters, who bringeth forth the chariot and horse, the army and the power. They shall lie down together, they shall not rise. They are extinguished, they are quenched like a wick. And then he says, do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. You see, deliverance from Babylon was a new thing. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me. The jackals and the ostriches. Because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen. This people I have formed for myself. They shall declare my praise. When you think that God is through with His people, God stands up and He says, I'm not done yet. And this is something we have to understand about God's love for Israel. He's not done with His people. He wasn't done then and He's not done with them now. Too many people think that Israel has been done in, back in, in, in biblical times, that God had, had enough with them. But promise after promise after promise, God says, I have chosen them, I will deliver them. 
A little later on in Isaiah 48, verses 20 and 21, again the thought of deliverance when he says, Go forth from Babylon, flee from the Chaldeans, with a voice of singing, declare, proclaim this, utter it to the end of the earth, say, The Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. And they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He caused the waters to flow from the rock for them. He also split the rock and the waters gushed out. How similar that was when they came out of Egypt. Happened the same way. They needed water. God always provided water. How much greater is the deliverance when they don't have a Moses leading them? And yet God says, I'm your Moses. I'm better than Moses. I'll give you all the water you need to get back to the land. And then in Isaiah 51, verses 9 through 11, Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? So the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, sorrow and sighing shall flee away. When you read about the captivity into Babylon and the 70 years that they're going to spend in Babylon, I can tell you this, there was no singing. As a matter of fact, a psalm tells us that they hung up their harps in Babylon. To them, this was the lowest that they could ever get. And again, it wasn't because of the nations putting them there. It was because they put themselves there because of their disobedience. And yet, on their return to Zion, on their return to Jerusalem, on their return to the land of Israel, to the land of promise, they return with joy and singing and gladness. Is there not joy and singing and gladness when God delivers us from our captivities? Captivities that we've placed ourselves in. Man, when the Lord sets us free, boy, we are free indeed to worship Him and to praise Him with everything that is within us. And if we don't, something's wrong with us. I think there's a heart that has to be generated by God. By His mercy, by His grace. It generates us. It motivates us. It, ge- it energizes us. Later on, Jeremiah would make clear that the exiles were to be in Babylon for 70 years. You can read that in Jeremiah 25, verse 11. And that a remnant would return to the land. They would rebuild the temple. And they would once again establish the nation. This is what we're going to be seeing as we move along in the book of Jeremiah. Even though Jeremiah, for the most part, is still preaching and telling them this is what's going to happen to you, and it's going to happen. But in Jeremiah 23, again, these are the bright spots along the way. These are the encouragements. These are the hopes that are being given. Jeremiah 23, verse 3. But I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. God's promise of His people returning to the land. 
Jeremiah 31, verses 7 through 9. Don't forget, by the way, whenever you see that it says out of the countries, not just Babylon, but out of the countries, because you see this is not just going to be fulfilled in the near future, it's going to be fulfilled in the far future, which is yet to come as well. But we'll get to that later. Jeremiah 31, verse 7 says, For thus saith the Lord, Sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, Babylon, gather them from the ends of the earth, far fulfillment, among them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, the one who labors with child, together. A great throng shall return there. They shall come with weeping, and with supplications I will lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. And so right in the middle of all this judgment, in the first half of chapter 16, and right in the middle of a blackness that was so deep and so dark, that we see the light of God shining through. Spiritually speaking, it is the darkest before the dawn. But the people were going into captivity. But they were also going to return home once again. And the Lord tempers His judgment with grace. The Lord tempers His judgment with grace and with mercy and with hope. The people would return as a chastened people, never again to turn to the idols of the Gentile nations any longer. The captivity worked, in other words. From that standpoint, the captivity worked. They weren't going to mess with idols anymore. Now that was the good news. But even though there would be deliverance for Israel in the distant future, she would still have to count on judgment in the near future. So when we get back to verse 16 now, so we're given a, a little bit of light there in verses 14 and 15. We get back to verse 16 and it says, Behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. And first I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin, because they have defiled my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. Now, you'll have to understand that as you look at this particular phrase, you may be thinking, is he talking about the Babylonians or he's talking about Judah? Well, in effect, he's really talking about both. But in particular, he's talking about Judah. Because the images that the Lord used to describe the way the Babylonians were to come and capture his people here was quite vivid. Uh, you know, the fishermen, the, the use of the metaphors of fishing and of, of hunting and, and even banking, by the way. The Lord would be summoning fishermen who would cast their nets and catch the Jewish people and not one of them would escape. 
It's something that we see in the other prophets as well. So notice the consistency, the, the prophetic consistency of God's word. For example, Ezekiel 12, verse 13, I will also spread my net over him, and he shall be caught in my snare. I will bring him to Babylon, to the land of the Chaldeans, yet he shall not see it, though he shall die there. That's actually speaking of Zedekiah, the king is going to be king when the Babylonians come. But in effect, he represents all of the people. And God uses that same phrase of a net over him as, as a fishing net. And remember, the Chaldeans were fishermen. We'll see more of that as we go. Amos chapter 4, verse 2. Amos 4, verse 2 says, The Lord God has sworn by His holiness, Behold, the day shall come upon you when He will take you away with fish hooks and your posterity with fish hooks. Now, while that's given a little bit of a picture, the same kind of picture about fishing, the, the fish hooks is an interesting thing because the Chaldeans actually put hooks on their prisoners to transport them on their nose and hooks to move them like cattle. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. You see the price of of disobedience. God's taking note, by the way, let me, let me tell you, God's taking note of what the Babylonians are going to do or what they're going to do and, and what they did. God took note. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, the prophet Habakkuk says, Why do you make men like fish of the sea? Like creeping things that have no ruler over them. They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Here we see the whole picture. Hooks, nets, dragnets. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. And therefore they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet. Because by them they sh- their share is sumptuous and their food plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? Habakkuk was a little perturbed with what God was allowing. Chapter 2, by the way, we don't have time, we'll study it when we get there, but chapter 2, God speaks and sets Habakkuk straight about what's going on. But it gives you a picture now of the consistency, the usage of, of the, the images and the metaphors. Even though they weren't metaphors, I mean, you know, in, in essence, they, they were fishers of men, but not like fishers of men as Jesus wants his disciples to be. That's the total opposite. The Babylonians were fishers of men so that they could put them into captivity. God wants us to be fishers of men to bring people out of captivity into freedom in Christ. That's the kind of fishers we need to be. I guess in a way it's catch and release. Those who are fishermen know what I'm talking about. Catch and release unto the Lord, unto the Lord Jesus Christ. But they would also come as hunters to hunt down the people throughout all of the southern kingdom of Judah. And and I want you to go back to Amos for just a moment. Amos chapter 9, verses 1 through 4. And again, you see a little bit of this picture here. I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, Strike the doorposts that the thresholds may shake. And break them on the heads of them all. I will slay the last of them with a sword. He who flees from them shall not get away. And he who escapes from them shall not be delivered. 
Though they dig into hell, from there my hand shall take them. Though they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search and take them. Though they hide from my sight of the bottom of the sea, from there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. Though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword, and it shall slay them. I will set my eyes on them for harm and not for good. Now again, remember the picture. God says they are not going to escape this punishment. And he uses the Babylonians as fishermen and even as hunters so that none will escape. All will go into captivity. Because there were some who ran up into the hills of Carmel and they were chased down and taken into captivity from there. So as we read verse 17 then, and look at verse 17 for just a moment. As we read verse 17, we're reminded that nothing the children of Judah did And nothing that we do was or is hidden from God. He sees everything we do. And even the thoughts and the intents of our hearts, God sees. You know, when we were kids, you know, our parents would say, God sees what you're doing. And to some extent, we were scared, you know. Well, we should have been. Because that was real. It was true. Our parents may have just been threatening. But God really does see us. God really does see everything. He sees the thoughts and intents of our hearts. He sees what's going through your mind right now. He sees that some of you aren't even paying attention to what I'm saying. And I don't see that, but God does. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 makes that clear. And there's no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. By the way, I would take note of that last phrase, to whom we must give account. Because I tell you right now, it's time for the church to pay attention to what God's word has to say. From Genesis to Revelation, especially what God has to say about these end times. We better pay close attention because we are going to give account Peter tells us in one of his letters that judgment first comes to the house of God. What does that do to people when they read that? Or do they just put that away? Is that one of the scriptures that people say, well, you know what? You know, there's just some things that we just don't want people to be, you know, have their, their, their toes stepped on. So, you know, we, we, we look for the nice things in the scriptures. Listen, we got to read the scriptures rightly and rightly divide them because God's coming. Christ is coming and we need to get ready. And the church needs to be ready because the Bible says there in First Peter, the judgment first begins in the house of God. And if that's the case, what's going to happen to those who aren't in the house of God? So if it's going to begin first with us, I mean, secondly, it's going to go out into the world. There's no creature hidden in his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's, let's take that reality. Let's take that as reality and let's consider it and let's ponder it. Let's pray about it. Let's search the heart and say it's about time we start getting ready, with, we start getting ready for the Lord's return. As for the banking metaphor... 
I mean, that's clearly seen in verse 18. Look at verse 18. And first, it says, I will, pay, I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin because they have defiled my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. You know, if, if the fishermen miss catching some, even though we, we, we notice that it tells, it tells us they're not missing anybody. But even if the fishers miss catching some, the hunters would track the rest down. And why? Simply because the nation owed a great debt to the Lord for the way they had treated God's law and God's land. And, if, and may I add one other thing. The way they had treated God's law, God's land, and God's love. How do you treat God's law or God's word? How do you treat God's love towards you? You see, in the book of Deuteronomy, God tells His people, you didn't love me first. I, I, you didn't choose me. I chose you. In essence, what He's saying is, I, I loved you first. You didn't love me first. I loved you first. And chose you first. So how, how do we treat that love of God? How do we treat the, the, the law of God? The note, the payment was now due, you see. And notice that the Lord says, I will repay them double for their wickedness and their sin. Iniquity is wickedness. I will pay them double for their wickedness and their sin, which means that God's judgment would be full, complete, sufficient, total that's the kind of judgment that God was going to bring upon his people over this period of time that they were going to be in captivity some years ago some years ago an excavation team an archaeological excavation team in Jerusalem uh, dug down to the layer of history that represented the time of the Babylonian captivity and besides finding a layer of ash, because that's what they were expecting, because the city was destroyed and burned, aside from just finding a layer of ash, they discovered, listen, they discovered hundreds, hundreds upon hundreds of idols, little idols, medium-sized idols, some big idols, but idols that were placed in what was considered to be homes. And so here we see the evidence for God's judgment. Their idolatry. Go back to the Ten Commandments given on, on, on Sinai. What was it? One of the first ones. Thou shalt worship the Lord God, and Him alone shall you worship. You shall not make any graven image and worship it. This was it. God had had enough. How patient had God been? This was hundreds of years after the law had been given. And just as God's word said, there was idolatry. So the idols were discovered, found. And she would receive double. In other words, full and sufficient punishment for all her sins.
And when you get to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 2, it says, Speak comfort to Jerusalem, cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. If you remember our study in the book of Isaiah, which was, I don't remember how long ago, it wasn't that long ago, I don't think. But however long ago it was, when we were there in chapter 40, verse 2, we realized that double for all her sins just meant that Israel had received the full and sufficient payment. And so at this point we return to the statement of hope. This time adding the coming of the Gentile nations from, from the ends of the earth to worship the true and the living God of Israel. So now in verse 19, notice a little change of direction. A little change of who's speaking and who's directing here. Verse 19, O Lord, my strength and my fortress. Now, It is a word spoken to God, so it is Jeremiah more than likely. O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness, and unprofitable things. Will a man make gods for himself which are not God's? And then in verse 21, God speaks and says, Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Now some believe that verses 19 and 20 are a song composed by Jeremiah for the Lord. And it is significant that Jeremiah was given the wonderful privilege of seeing into the future and and catching this glimpse of a glorious day when the entire world would know the Lord. You know, if we just kind of look at the global situation today, we would wonder how many nations at all, at present time, by their leadership and by their their, uh, uh, governments would even give credence to God, would even give any kind of attention to God. You know, we'd have to say very few. And that great organization in New York City called the UN, you know, the United Nothingness, because that's all it is, It says United Nations, but it's just united nothing. It seems like their only purpose of existence is to find within a year as many times as they can to condemn Israel for things that Israel's only doing to protect themselves. Condemnation after condemnation after condemnation. And they let Ahmadinejad come and speak at their uh, at their rostrum as it were at their podium the president of Iran by the way if you don't know who Ahmadinejad is 
and to spew his poison and to spew his hatred for Israel from that place. And no one condemns him. And to have him stand there and, and, and all of a sudden give some revelation of, of the Muslim Messiah coming. This happened a couple of years ago, by the way. And people giving him tour, tours of New York City and taking him here and there and being a, a guest of our own nation. Makes you wonder. This world is really wacky. Especially the United Nothing. Because they don't do a thing. And yet, the prophets have foreseen a time when nations of the world will gather, not in New York City, not in Brussels, Belgium, not in the Netherlands at The Hague, not in Moscow, not in Egypt, in Cairo, Certainly not in Tehran, Iran. But the nations of the world will gather in Jerusalem. And they will come to worship the Lord. We're thinking, when's that going to happen? And more importantly, how is that going to happen? Yet Jeremiah was given this, this privilege of seeing into the future. And by the way, for us, not, not too far into the future. I mean, it's, you know, for him it was a long distance look, but now it's a lot closer for us. On the glorious day when the entire world will know the Lord. I mean, this passage here that we've been studying is a clear reference, first of all, to the Messianic Kingdom. The glorious day when the Lord Jesus will return to set up His kingdom and to set up the kingdom of God on earth. That has been promised. And I tell you this, Jesus hasn't broken any promises and the Lord hasn't broken any promises. You know, the Lord didn't break any promises about His Son coming to this earth. Every promise about Jesus coming the first time, about Jesus coming as the, the, as, as the baby in a manger and all of that, all of, every promise, every uh, biblical prophecy was fulfilled. Every one. If that's the case, then when Jesus makes prophecies about His return in the future, guess what? He's going to keep every one of those promises too. And every promise that God has made about Israel, God has already fulfilled many of them already for us to be able to say that there is an Israel in the land of promise. That's just God's Word being God's Word, which is true and faithful and right. So just to be able to foresee this event stirred Jeremiah to glorify the Lord. And this is what he's doing in the first two verses there, 19 and 20. Bursting out with praise, the prophet addressed the Lord as three things. He addressed Him as my strength. My strength, in other words, the one who empowered him to live a triumphant, victorious life and to faithfully proclaim the word of God to the people of his generation. To Jeremiah, God was his strength. 
And then secondly, to Jeremiah, God was his fortress. He says, my fortress, the one who protected him from all his enemies. And we've already seen where God has told Jeremiah, listen, Jeremiah, go, because I'm going to protect you. I want to keep you. Thirdly, he calls him my refuge. The one to whom he, would, he could flee for safety and help in times of need, suffering and distress. Is God these things, these three things to you? Is God your strength? Is He your fortress? Is He your refuge? Is God your strength, fortress and refuge? You have to make that choice. You have to decide. Choose you this day. Choose you this day whom you're going to serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, who is my strength, who is my fortress, who is my refuge. We'd be unwise not to. We'd be foolish not to choose the Lord. If he has brought all of these things to pass. But how sad to think that people refuse the free gift of life through Jesus Christ when they know that it will lead to eternal life. That saddens me. It saddens me when people walk away from that truth. When they know better. When you need strength for this life, you won't find it anywhere but in in Christ Jesus. When you need a fortress in your life, you won't find any greater than Jesus Christ. When you need a refuge, you won't find a better place to be than than in the very arms of Jesus Christ, the Lord. Next, the the prophet mentions that the nations would come to the Lord from the ends of the earth, confessing the futility of their lives and the lives of their forefathers, admitting that their idols were worthless. Isaiah and Zechariah had the same vision as well. Isaiah chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 says, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow to it. Where is that? That's Zion. That's Jerusalem. And all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us His ways, and we shall walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and rebuke many people. So, in essence, not all nations come. The nations will be judged, people will be rebuked, they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. You know, people want peace today, 
But there will be no peace until Jesus Christ sits on the throne in Jerusalem and rules and reigns for a thousand years as the Bible promises, predicts, and prophesies. There will be no peace. You see, that was one of the directives or maybe one of the goals of the United Nations. But have they kept the peace? They haven't kept the peace. No one can. And we can't go around the world saying that we now are going to do everything we can to bring peace to the world. We can't do it. Because there's only one Messiah, by the way. And his name is Jesus. He's the Messiah. One Messiah. Zechariah 8, verses 20 and 23 says, or through 23 says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, peoples shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord. And seek the Lord of hosts. I will my, I, I myself will also go, or will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from every language of the nation shall grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man and say, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. You know, there's an interesting scripture. Uh, I, I shouldn't even call it scripture. There's an interesting verse. In the Quran, or the Quran, it talks about uh, trees speaking out. When the jihad against Israel is at full force, that trees will speak out and say, Come over here, there is a Jew hiding behind me. But what do we see in God's word? Notice the difference. Notice the difference. In those days, ten men from every language of the nations will grasp the sleeve of a Jewish man and say, Come on, buddy, we're going to beat the crud out of you. No. It says, Let us go with you, for we've heard that God is with you. What a difference. And along with this, we see in verse 20 that Jeremiah asks rhetorically if humans can make gods for themselves. The answer is that they can, but what they make are not really gods at all. Since there is only one true God. You see, will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? It's only one answer. Now they can make them, but they're not really gods. Lastly, the Lord announces in verse 21 that in the future, when the nations seek him out, that he would convince them of his power and of his might, and that they might know that the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh, is the only true God, as we also see in Ezekiel 36. So I want you to turn to Ezekiel 36. It's going to be the last portion of scripture that we're going to read. Ezekiel 36, verses 22 through 28. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, 
I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God. When I am hallowed in you before their eyes. Notice, the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God. When I am hallowed in you before their eyes. Now stop for just a moment. And think about that statement as it applies to today. We in the body of Christ, we in the church of Jesus Christ, are not only to have the knowledge of God, but we are to have the very presence of God in our lives. We are not only blessed with the... uh, Holy Spirit with us and upon us but we are blessed with the Holy Spirit in us we cannot say that Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit therefore there is that presence of the Spirit in our lives each and every day we've been called as the children of God to have the mind of Christ We've been called to be a light to the world, to be salt to the earth, to be different than the world. Where am I going with all of this? For God to say to them, to His people, The nation shall know that I am the Lord when I am held in you. Brings to remembrance the things that Jesus said to his disciples. When he said, they shall know that you have, that you are my disciples, I should say. They shall know that you are my disciples when you love one another. In loving one another, as Christ has commanded us to do, what happens? We are in obedience to Christ. We are in obedience to God. But more than that, it reflects the fact that we honor God by loving one another. Because if He commanded us to do that, our obedience to do that, is honoring God. The world will know that we're His disciples because we have love one for another. And His people are told, when I'm held in you before their eyes, when they see that you really are serious about your commitment to Christ, when they see that you really love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the nations shall know that I am the Lord. I'm going to give you a sneak peek 
into this weekend's message. So you guys are just, you know, and you don't even have to pay for it. It's free. Sneak peek. Major question. Jesus told his disciples, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Now think about it. Think about the question. Are you a friend of the Lord? Or are you just an acquaintance? Do you know that there's a major difference? There's a major difference between being a friend of the Lord and being just an acquaintance. You may know the person a little bit. That's an acquaintance. You know them a little bit. Maybe you know most of your neighbors are like acquaintances. You know them as acquaintances. But you'll really know them. Are you a friend of Jesus? Or are you just an acquaintance? You need to know him. It isn't enough to know about Jesus. You need to know him personally. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's nothing to be putting off. Do you know when the last day is going to be? Let me ask you this. Do you know when your last day is going to be? You don't know, do you? You don't even think about it until you go to a funeral. And somebody dies. And if the preacher does his work, he gets you to focus on what death is. Because you don't ever see enough of it. We turn a blind eye. When death comes, it affects us all. And it makes us think of our own mortality. It makes us think, is this all there is to life? Well, is it? Is it all there is to life? We can act like, you know, uh, I live for the day and, you know, eat, drink, and be merry because what? Tomorrow you might die. It's time to be serious with God. I don't know how many times I can tell you or how many ways I can tell you, but it's time to get serious with God and with Jesus. For I will take you from among the nations, verse 24, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, which means the stone is dead, but a heart of flesh is alive. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then... You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. That's yet to come. Though they've already been back to the land. They were scattered again. But they're going to be back in the land. This time. They will see him whom they pierced. They will see him whom they pierced. And they will weep. Because they will see that whom they pierced was Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, the Messiah. It seems to me that the Lord is going to have to teach our country, our nation, that He is the Lord. 
It seems somewhat obvious to me that at this point in time, America doesn't know that God is out there. And I speak as a whole, not so much the fact that I know that there are many people who love the Lord in this country. But when he does make himself known, I fear that it will be quite impressive. Just think about the Bible saying, every eye shall see him. That's pretty impressive. And so to encapsulate the last three verses, Jeremiah realized that previous generations of his countrymen had wandered far from the true God. They had made worthless deities that had no value and offered no security. And so Jeremiah's conclusion was this. Anything or anyone beside God, the Lord God, Yahweh himself, is insufficient to meet the needs of the people. God gives his verdict in verse 21. Since the prophet had decided to to be his dedicated vessel, God would work with him and empower him. And as the two worked together, people from every nation would come to know the salvation that the God of Israel offered. Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might. And they shall know that my name is the Lord. And Jeremiah was his prophet. We have God's word. We have God's word from Genesis to Revelation. We have the full and complete revelation of God and of Jesus Christ. What are we doing with God's word in our lives, folks? Judgment first begins in the house of God. We need to be faithful. Faithful in prayer, faithful in study, faithful in in Bible reading, faithful in proclaiming and declaring the gospel, faithful in just living our lives simple and plain, but living it simply for the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, we'll keep teaching you the Word. I just want it to stick. Not just up here, but most importantly, in your hearts. Because that's where God meets us. That's where the Lord meets us. Let's pray.